0: research briefs episode uh today we're going to talk to a scholar that's known for focusing on transformative change within the field of engineering education um so today we bring to you dr julia williams professor of english at rose holman in the humanities and arts department since 1992. Uh, she started her career uh teaching composition at a time when the institution was an all-male school, but it has since evolved. And um, she's held various roles uh, in administration and otherwise, but is well known to us in engineering education as a change expert and, ta-da, a Jeopardy contestant um, during Jeopardy's professor tournament. So like a real TV celebrity is before us. Thanks, Julia.
1: That's quite an introduction, Jeremy. I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so to get us started, can you tell us about what it's like um, just living across the boundaries of English and engineering? Um, giving your um just kind of giving us a glimpse of your journey from composition to engineering and I don't even know if I say to, mm-hmm. but through or combining the two.
1: All of those seem appropriate. Um, you mentioned the fact that I was hired here at Rose Hallman in order to, you know, help students improve their written and oral communication skills. Um, it, was a, it was a very clear initiative that I thought was exciting to collaborate on. And one of my first change projects in that context was finding ways to use computer, computer-aided composition in my classroom. You know, we had a one-to-one laptop requirement with students uh, back in that time, a very long time ago, and a very antique technology now. Um, But I thought, this is great. You know, we can use computers and students will be using that to write and revise and get feedback. And I was so convinced that it was the right idea. I I thought to myself, well, who would have a problem with doing this too? Um, Well, you know, I had my first encounters with change questions and change i won't say Mm. resistance but just the fact that it was obvious to me but wasn't obvious to others was a real life Mm. lesson Mm. so uh, in my career going on I, i moved into the institutional institutional research and assessment office in 2005 and that job was all about facilitating change in the classroom uh preparing um change you know, accreditation, doing accreditation work. And what I found myself doing a lot of the time was translating between disciplines. Chemical engineers focus on process, and civil engineers are focusing on serving the, you know, um, the public good and and and, you know, chemists have a different language. and um, mm-hmm. so I really saw it as my job to hear what one, discipline or a group was saying, help another group understand it. And in the process, educating myself mm-hmm. uh, with regards to what engineering education is all about.
0: Hmm. Sure. So um, where did it take you after that? I know I met you probably not quite a decade ago, but it was through like red projects. Like, oh, come yeah, on, bring bring me forward. Like, bring me to today. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, the the move into a broader change effort was really based on the fact that I I saw opportunities for change all around me. And as I struggled sometimes to make change happen, other times, you know, hitting it out of the park, maybe, mm-hmm. I thought, gee, there are things that we do to make change happen that aren't really written down anywhere. And as far as my own disciplinary training in English, I never had a class in here's how to understand your academic context, here's how to understand the uh, resistances you might face, here's how to leverage partnerships across your institution to make things work. So, you know, as I transitioned into different jobs at Rose Holman, I was always thinking about, okay, where are the opportunities for change? How can I facilitate that? And that really led me to thinking about this yeah, I call them a set of tools, but it's really what you didn't learn in graduate school that you need early in your career and the middle of your career later on, for sure. sure.
0: Sure, yeah. So what do you think has been your greatest impact? I know we're going to come back to some of the sure. things. We're going to dig into some of the things you have um, kind of uh, teed up. But can you tell me about um, your thoughts on your greatest impact thus far, like on the engineering ed community?
1: Well... I always emphasize the fact that I'm a teacher and I'm a practitioner, and so what I bring to the table, I think, is that focus on helping people develop new skills, uh, apply things. Um, I, I mean, I understand, uh, you know, what? Well, let me put it this way: I, in my role as a teacher and a practitioner, I like to share those research. Based tools. There's lots of literature out there about how to make change. It's not often in our engineering education realm. It's often in, you know, organizational literature, higher education. Um, so I like to pick those things out and share them, share them with the people who need them. Uh, I do that because I have found that change work can be pretty isolating uh, if you're at a smaller institution, uh, if you're an under in an underfunded department, If you're not a person who's you know been encouraged to find outside funding so what i try to do is i try to cultivate that community of change makers these tools aren't hard to learn but as a teacher i believe i can help you learn them and coach you through applying them and and talk to you if you tried it and didn't work well we'll try something else i mean it's always the case in class with every student you meet that not one size is gonna fit all. And so you're creating this kind of customized curriculum for each change maker that
2: you meet. Building on this, this idea, this identity of being a practitioner, right? So you uh, presumably value practice, right? And there's, there's the theoretical, right? That we often live in as researchers and then this there's the actual doing it, the practice part. And so can you speak a little bit about to what what do you attribute is, you know, the challenge to change, right? How do we move that research to practice? What do you think are those barriers to translating from that theoretical to the practitioner doing of things? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so as a practitioner, I think
1: it's important for me to have a research base or foundation to whatever I do. And in my own you know, growing familiarity with that realm, um, I think it's been a struggle for many people because it's not an easy translation. Yes, I'm an engineering educator. And I know, like Monique, you and Jeremy, I know engineering education researchers. But the, there is some distance between the two uh, areas of expertise, right? Um, when you are just entering it as a graduate student would feel like you're getting to know this literature but you don't regularly work in that space there's jargon that you have to learn that's very appropriate to entering education but may not be what i encounter when i'm in my own classroom there's the issue of time where do you know what's the right thing for me to look at and who's writing it and where is it help me out with that um, and often there's not a campus expert in this field that can help guide me as a mentor would. Um, so, I, and probably going going back again, disciplinary differences in language make a huge difference as well. Um, you know, I've I've got to learn a new language. It's it's doable, but it's it's a struggle. Um, I think the other issue uh, that's really important is the communication issue. Um, it's important because sometimes. The language, as I said, of the of the article isn't accessible and it may not have. A a clear, practical focus, the author may think it has a clear, practical focus, but the translation hasn't been made for me. And finally, I just talk about the lack of rewards for this work. Sometimes I have to do this on my own. Uh, My department chair might not think this is the right thing for me to do. it might be hard for me to find like-minded people on my campus. Um, so I think those are some of the things that are contributing to keeping these two fields apart and they, the research world and the practice world, they need to find ways to break down those barriers to come together, to work together for the benefit of our students.
2: What do you think we can be doing as a community to close the gap? What are some some things we can be leveraging in, in engineering education or engineering more broadly to close that gap? Sure. Um, so I am a big fan of the NSF REEF
1: program, the Research Initiation into Engineer Formation. I think that's the right spelling out of the acronym. I think that has great potential because it matches an expert in the research to someone who really does want to learn in the practice side, and so I facilitated uh, this this application on my own campus. Uh, we got to remember though that some campuses have no one to help to do an NSF research grant. So I think we've got to work on that part of of the of the barrier too. The other thing I've advocated for many times in the past is bringing engineering education graduate students right to the campus that needs them and so some years ago working with uh rachel ellistad at university of minnesota mankato and corey hickson at colorado christian and ella ingram my colleague here at rose holman we worked on a on a we developed a program called the rising engineering education sorry Rising Engineering Educator Faculty Experience. And that was a way to bring engineering education graduate students to campuses that really needed their expertise. Um, Working with some of these graduate students, they would say, well, I'm not an an expert in engineering education, but I would always say, look, you are on your path and we really could use your your, uh, input and information. I think that helps begin the process of introducing engineering education graduate students to different kinds of educational contexts. You know, when you're in a big um, engineering education program, you're probably working a lot with first year engineering programs, and that's great, but it's more than that that we need from the engineering education community. Uh, For our own part, and I say our part, meaning, a place like Rose-Hulman or Cal Poly or any place that we've been able to bring engineering education graduate students, it is the case that faculty are now being introduced to this research and may want to apply it to first year experiences, but not in a you know, first year program, uh, but maybe a set curriculum or even beyond that. Uh, when we had graduate students on our campus, they worked with faculty in different disciplinary departments. They also worked in my office in institutional research, and they became a part of the community. So I think uh, considering ways to integrate these two different realms, even at the graduate student level, I think could go a long way.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So you've taught us a little bit about different roles that you've held that kind of have kind of situated you in this space where you focus on change. Um, is there anything else you want to say about like how you got into focusing on change?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I started with the learning from my mistakes. Um, you know, I've I've looked around my campus and saw oppor- I've seen opportunities, I've seen gaps, and I've tried to figure out ways to address them. Uh, You actually talked about this in the interview that you gave for my book, that you just look around and say, hey, why are we doing this? Or what's happening over here? So, um, some years ago, there was a small working group of faculty drawn from many different disciplines on our Rose-Hulman campus. And we talked about, well, we'd like to offer an externally focused workshop. And because Rose Holman is known for teaching, the first thought was, oh, we'll offer a teaching workshop. And then we went out and looked at the market for teaching workshops. And we looked at Netty and Exceed. And we thought, oh, wait, um, maybe there's already enough in that line. But what we didn't see was uh, a workshop that was focused on developing change tools and giving others the opportunity to learn and practice those tools. In a, in a supportive and coaching environment. So that was our idea. Uh, 2012, we offered the first on-campus workshop. We tried some things out, we made mistakes, we learned a lot. And that was where this idea for the Making Academic Change Happen workshop was born. Um, our thought was, yeah, we, our thought was, we're gonna try to make an impact with the, you know, engineering, actually STEM faculty on the ground, who are trying to do things differently, whatever project they might want to take on. You know, everybody's got a different emphasis and different context. Now, in 2015, after we had done that for a couple of years on our own campus, uh, we connected with the um, program officer at the time at NSF, Donna Riley, and she decided that her new that the new NSF Red Program. Needed a practice counterpart, so she asked us to um, provide that practice-focused change maker curriculum to the first year of Red. That's where we initially met Jeremy, mm-hmm. and now that project has got 26 different Red projects at 24 institutions, and I know that they're funding at least two more for the coming year, and maybe more. Mm-hmm. Now. If you're not familiar with, I know you two are familiar, but if your listeners are not familiar with Red, the revolutionizing engineering and computer science departments project, these are large complex projects that are focused on the second year of the the curriculum. And every team is made up of a variety of experts in engineering education and a disciplinary focus. Sometimes I've seen the team have experts in anthropology, and I mean, just a wide variety of disciplines, all experts, but they need more than disciplinary expertise in order to make the projects successful. So uh, we've been providing, developing, and providing that uh, practice focused. Change Maker Curriculum, um, and I think it's had a tremendous impact. That's, I think it's has a tremendous impact, and the the project members tell me so, and that really makes me very very happy. Now, in addition to that, we've been using that mock umbrella to offer additional consulting to non red teams, to graduate students. We've offered, um, you know, specialized. Uh, workshops for graduate students. Uh, We've offered um, workshops to the Kern Entrepreneurial Engineering Network faculty, faculty working with Keen. And I've been able to go outside of the U.S., do workshops in Malaysia and Japan and Qatar. So it's it's interesting how uh, broad the need is and how much interest there is just, you know, making things better.
0: Honestly, you are living the the quote that the one thing that's constant is change. Um, uh-huh. And that's why that, you know, that's why this topic resonates around the world because yeah. many of us are wrestling with change. Um, so that's amazing we could talk <laughs> all day, I guess about some of your um, adventures. Uh, yeah,
2: <laughs> I, I suspect that all of this work and change and this moving and shaking across the globe to share what you've learned through your different endeavors has led to a book. Um, it has. It has. Um, so um,
1: would you like me to talk about this book a little bit? I think you would. Please do. Yes, please. <laughs> well, um, I always thought I was going to put something into a book uh, that was derived from these various change experiences and developing and helping people. And so my, my grand plan was, okay, 2019, I'll apply for a year-long sabbatical. I'll make that work somehow. I will, in 2020, travel the world giving workshops. Oh, you're already laughing. (laughs) The world had other plans, but actually, now that I think about it, it was actually a very important change in plan because instead of traveling the world, I was at my house in, you know, a state forest property in Indiana I couldn't go anywhere, I couldn't do anything else, and I had to develop a writing process for this book. So the book really came out of perhaps uh, an enforced isolation, which many writers will tell you is the best way to get your book done. Also good for dissertations. Um, So I've dedicated this book to change makers, to the change makers. And that means anybody in STEM education who's looking for a community Who's looking for some practical tools that are research-based and anyone who has perhaps not even tried to make change or has tried and struggled and needs a new approach. Um, It's coming, it's now out from Rutledge Press. Um, It's on, there's a big summer sale going on right now. You heard it here first. And the purpose really of the book is to provide that user with a set of tools that are easily accessible. If I'm having trouble communicating with a colleague, I can look through the book, I can try this, I can try that, I can try this. Um, So I think I, I wanted to address what I thought were the biggest challenges. Communication is always a big one. Like, how do I talk about my project in a way that will really identify the central challenge and the stakeholders that are impacted, and what about teamwork? As faculty, we're not really used to working on a team, and sometimes we're not the best team members. So, what can I provide to users in terms of understanding why someone's not doing the work that you thought they were going to do, or how do you deal with finding the right people to be on your team? Um, so, and and then the other thing I'll, I'll highlight are the change maker interviews. I uh, Said, you know, Jeremy very generously uh, sat down virtually on Zoom to give me an interview. But I also got a chance to interview uh, Jeff Freud, who at the time was at Ohio State, where you are, Monique. And, you know, he had been my colleague at Rose Holman many years ago, but we had, you know, always been in touch. And the fact that he could give an interview about his experiences as a change maker, um, particularly about his experiences here at Rose Holman. With the integrated curriculum, I mean it was it was fantastic to talk to him and to have that opportunity.
2: So wow. I don't, I don't know that you gave the title, "Making <laughs> Changes in STEM Education: The Change Makers Toolkit." Which, I, so I've been reading. I, I did my homework. I see that. And in my, I see reading, that. I have a couple things. One, I want to tell the re- the the listeners that that this book you could either read it from cover to cover like a novel or You can just pick up chapter to chapter as needed, which you eloquently put out in the front so that, you know, if folks don't have time to sit down and read the whole book, right, they can go to the chapter in particular where they're having some challenges. And I noted also that it's sort of built like a like a workbook to some degree, right? Like you will go in and do exercises, you know what I mean? Like there's there's yeah, very. It's very pragmatic and practical, I feel like, in its execution of the book for those who, who, everybody's running around like a chicken with their head cut off in the academy, right? And I think you've made this accessible to folks that maybe don't have an, a, a lot of time. I wanna, I do wanna draw the attention of those who who get the book. Chapter two, where you talk about getting ready for change and you talk about change as a journey. And that journey Mm -hmm. even starts with a little bit of like self-reflection, like who am I as a change maker? I could see this being extended to talking about strengths and weaknesses as as a change maker, you know, and thinking about who you might collaborate with, assessing opportunities for change, evaluating your readiness for change, right? I feel like, again, getting back to that Mm -hmm. self-reflective piece. Scanning your campus environment for potential challenges to your change. I think to your point, sometimes we go, oh, this is a great idea, right? Without necessarily uh, acknowledging that the landscape may be different from wherever the idea came from and and what might be those barriers. And then planning a roadmap for change. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We talk a little <laughs> bit more about this road, because I, again, thinking of this as a journey, right? Before we had... Uh, like I, Apple Maps and Google Maps. Like, you had to sit down and figure out where you wanted to go and how you were going to get there. Arguably, you're making the same argument here. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh, well, sure. I'll just point out that that chapter is, has two bookends. One end of it is the illustration uh, by the graphic uh, illustrator, graphical note taker, Julia Reich, who lives here in Terre Haute. And she does a great illustration about starting your road trip, and then the chapter ends with your roadmap for change. And I was inspired by a a 16th century map maker who showed a map of, you know, unknown seas and sea monsters. Um, You know, getting ready is something... I encourage other people to do because I've often be, been guilty of not preparing enough. Not to say that you have to get locked in and oh, I can't go forward, but those self-reflection pieces I think are key. Um, if you don't know yourself as a change maker, what kind of motivates you, who you might work with, what some of your you know prac work habits are, then you're gonna struggle, I think. Um, and I know that some people will look at those exercises and say, oh, I don't have time for that. I don't have time to do writing. You have a choice. You can do that on the front end or you can struggle more on the other end. I sound like some dentist who's telling you to floss, right? You can floss now or you can deal with me later. So it's a lot more, it's a lot more enjoyable than flossing. Believe me. I'm that's probably the worst metaphor I could come up with. But the idea is, you know, these different tools are, you, are there for you to use. And if you find something that really inspires you, fantastic. Um, you know, I was inspired in the writing of it by lots of different things. You know, I broke a piece of pottery and I went online to learn how to fix it. And then I thought, oh, wait. If you're fixing pottery, isn't that kind of like fixing something that's gone wrong in your team? And, uh, you know, it just stuff like that that really got me going. Um, And, of course, because I'm the English professor, there's a lot about language and communication. But believe me, I have spent a lot more time communicating about change than I've had with the nuts and bolts of getting an actual project off the ground. So, I mean... I would say I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry (laughs) about that.
2: And our very own Jeremy London is in chapter two, too, by the way. (laughs) I would not skip that chapter. I would read it. I would read it with such attention because she
1: gives you everything you need. And you get to hear Jeremy's voice. Yeah, I try to to do very little editing on the interviews because what I hear in those interviews are these great people telling me about their change experiences. I find it fascinating.
0: It is so fascinating to see your name in print that you didn't write. You're like, whoa, wait, what, ah. what did I say? <laughs> I'm honored. Thank you. Oh. Can we zoom back? Can we just zoom out a little bit? I mean, to me, like writing a book sounds like daunting. Like ah how'd you do it? Like, because there, there may be others that have ideas about, you know, they may be brewing book ideas, but can you just zoom out a little bit and give sure. us the the author's perspective about like, how do you take on, maybe not, maybe daunting is a little bit uh, of an overstatement, but you know, it, it is an endeavor.
1: Well, where do you start? I mean, I'm an English major and I thought, oh, I'm going to write a book. Did I know how to write a book? Uh, no, you know, it's, It was the case though, that there are important resources online that any of us can use. And the first one that I'll call out is Dr. Helen Sword, who is the author of Stylish Academic Writing and Writing with Pleasure, a bunch of other books, all fantastic, and a person who has shared all of her tools for writing free on her website, helensword.com and a whole series of YouTube videos, Helen's Word. I mean, just a bunch of stuff. And what I did is I took her up on her offer of a free virtual five day writing retreat at my house. She says, okay, here's what you're going to do today and you're not going to do it for eight hours a day. So don't think, Oh, I can't do it. I don't have time. You've got time for this. And it was five days. And you do have to develop a process. Mm -hmm. I have one now. And so I'm thinking about, Oh, I can't believe I'm saying this another book. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But I think about that and I think, oh yeah, here's my process. Here's what I do to get myself started. Here's what I do to get feedback. That was another very important part of the process. I'll just cite a couple of really important critical writing friends that I had during the process of writing this book. One of them is my colleague here at Rose Holman, Dr. Emily Dossmar in biomedical engineering, and my colleague Sid Stan in computer science and software engineering. They read parts of this book and they said, Oh boy, I don't get that. Or, oh, ha, huh. or did you think about that? You need feedback because you need that dialogue with your reader. Another important person. Um, in this book, who helped with the production of this book, who I just met for the first time face to face—well, no, the second time, just in June at ASWE—is her name is um, Susan uh, Robinson, who is the author of a book called *The Peak Performing Professor* and is coming out with another book about coaching faculty. Um, she's been my coach for many years and lives in the Baltimore area, and so we had lunch at ASWE. And I had the best crab cake of my life because she took me there. But she was a great one for saying you've gotta make sure that the 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 chapter isn't about you, Julia, but is about your user, your reader. It was just fascinating stuff. She's great. Uh, the other, the other person I'll focus on is Janice Schaefer, who is the <laughs> the story purveyor and instigator of Story Ready. That's her website, storyready.com. Um, she influenced me a lot, not just in terms of how you tell the story of change changemakers uh, through this book, but also helped when I was deciding, you know, how do I renovate my first year writing class to go back after the pandemic and start teaching again. So I'm grateful to all of those people. They had a huge impact. So I, I hope everyone can find those critical writing friends who are around them. You read what they write. They read what you write. You give them feedback and remember it's called a friend, not, you know, critical writing punching bag.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for sharing. I mean insights about, you know, your mindset as you go into something like that and then very practical tools that you use to actually get things done, but also the importance of feedback from critical friends. That does a Thanks for it. It does sound a little less daunting. I do have a book idea in me. So um mm. have to chat with you. You may need a
1: critical writing friend or two. I'm looking I'm just at me. <laughs> I'm, <just saying.
0: laughs>
1: I'm here for it. I'm
0: here for it. I'm here for it. So now we've kind of come to the end and we're gonna ask you a question that we ask everyone. If I had a drum roll, then I would, you know, roll it. Um, but it's prediction time. So where do you see the field of engineering ed going? Like if you had a crystal ball and could predict the future, all those things, we'd have to talk offline about, you know, playing a lottery or something. But
2: what you <laughs> see? Like, like
0: what what do you see? Like where what are some things that you feel like are in our future, you know, as a field? Mm.
1: it's it's the fact that our future is now because the community college collaboration is here. And you know different different funding agencies already see it have seen it. The National Science Foundation has made a pivot to focus on the community college collaborations in their red program. um I've been working with a consortium of four year colleges and community colleges out west um, you know this is the this is the place or this is the way that we're going to work toward that continued enrichment and diversification of STEM. There's so many students who go to community college for year one or year one and two and then transfer in. And that is a decision that is, you know, very individual to each person. I want to stay close to home. I want to save my family money. Uh, I have to work full time and do this. But What happens when those students make that transfer? How do they feel being in this different environment? What's their identity as an engineer, a scientist, a mathematician? What, I mean, how do we make that transition possible? And think too about the faculty in the community college Uh, domain who work in a very different set of circumstances that any of us do so I'm really interested to see what comes of that community college focus because I think it's it's really time that's my prediction Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I'm Uh, it's not my prediction because I'm just working in that space and I'm really interested in it but you're
0: not alone yeah (laughs) um are there any scholars that you're following either new or established or right in our space or not let's do some name dropping
1: name dropping well let me drop first let me drop annie patrick who was at virginia tech on their red project and now has moved to georgia tech working on their red project and annie did a series of identity podcasts when she was at Virginia Tech. So she was interviewing students about, you know, how they saw themselves as engineers. I'm really excited about the fact first that she took up a a medium that perhaps, you know, old fogey faculty like me would never have thought of and that you two thought of, of course. Um, But it's amazing how she's been able to take that very adaptive medium and use it in order to um, make well let me, let me just say a little bit it, she was able to identify the students but who benefited the most from that probably were faculty at Virginia Tech who didn't know their students as well as they could and these mm-hmm. podcasts were instrumental in getting that information getting those identity out getting those mm-hmm. identities out there mm-hmm. um, yeah I mentioned Janice Schaefer who is not working primarily in academic space, but uh, as part of her Story Ready project, um, she's really been instrumental in showing people the importance of telling stories, telling our stories. And as I said, she influenced me in helping me transform my first year composition class, which is great, in my opinion. I don't know what the students think, but they'll arrive next week. We'll see. Um, But, you know, the, the power of narrative in the STEM disciplines. I think we've undervalued it for a long time, but boy, is it coming on strong. So I'm going to name drop Janice again, double name-drop. Mm, and yeah. then yeah, I'll I'll recommend a book that I've been reading so I can learn something about other people. So it's a book by Deborah E. Meyerson. It's called Rocking the Boat: How Tempered Radicals Affect Change. And I am so guilty of not being that tempered, um, I am. I need a little more time in the furnace to be more tempered. But it, you know, you don't have to go in and be, you know, guns a blazing and rocking the boat. You can be pretty effective in many other ways. And I like being reminded of that. There are different mm-hmm. ways to get to change. We don't all have to be, you know, out there jazz hands and you know, yeah. being a little. Ill-tempered, uh, untempered, ill-tempered, I don't know.
0: If yeah. only our audience could see those jazz hands, you just did. <laughs> and, um, so
1: provide your own jazz hands.
0: Can you say that title one more time? I'm going to, some people may need to jot it down.
1: May- Meyerson change.
0: called Rocking
1: the Boat, How yes. Tempered Radicals Affect Change. Yes. And she works in the kind of management literature space so it's interesting how you can sort of dip into that area and say oh yeah this is stuff I can use so Mm -hmm. like I say thinking about the next book uh maybe
0: yeah so now we have suggested two books for people to put in their library um are there any parting words that you would like to share with our international research briefs community before we sign off from this episode
1: well a first Thank you for giving me an an hour to talk about my book and the work that I've been doing. Um, I think it's incredibly important and valuable for for every, for STEM educators to know that you know there are there's a community out here. Things need to be done. You're willing to do them, and I know that uh, when you do change, other things get set aside. But I think um, for my own part, I've really found so inspiring the examples of other changemakers. I've seen the, the level of industry and intellect they bring to their projects. And when I, I see what, how much satisfaction they get out of it, too. So I would encourage you, yeah, change on. This is our, this is our mission. Change on.
0: We didn't have a closing um <laughs> quote already we may have to we may have to adapt it but that anyway, thank it. you thank you so much for your time this has been wonderful um and as someone who could talk about change and bridging research and practice all day I really love the insights that you've shared today and also in your book and just in a variety of you know, mechanisms that you use to be able to um, impact the field. So I just want to say thank you publicly um, for your work. Um, And as always, we want to thank you all for listening. Um, As Monique and I close this episode, we will give you our same advice as as always. Keep it simple,
2: but significant. See you next time.